We present the unbelievable truth, the panel game built on truth and lies. In the chair, please welcome David Mitchell. Hello and welcome to the unbelievable truth, the panel show about incredible truths and barely credible lies. The rules are almost embarrassingly simple, as indeed are tonight's panellists. Please welcome Rod Gilbert, John Finnamore, Lucy Beaumont and Richard Osman. The rules are as follows. Each panellist will present a short lecture that should be entirely false, save for five pieces of true information which they should attempt to smuggle past their opponents, cunningly concealed amongst the lies. Points are scored by truths that go unnoticed, while other panellists can win a point if they spot a truth, or lose points if they mistake a lie for a truth. We'll begin with Richard Osman. Richard, your subject is the octopus, described by my encyclopedia as a carnivorous marine mollusk known for its eight long tentacles, rounded soft body and ink. Off you go, Richard. Fingers on buzzers the rest of you. OK, let's start with the basics. The correct plural of octopus is, in fact, octopodes, as in the Byron poem, whilst swimming off the coast of Rhodes, I spied a shoal of octopodes. As for... John. (sighs) (laughs) It's not, is it? I don't think it is anymore. What don't you I'm think? I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I strongly believe that the plural of octopus is octopodes. Well, you're quite right it is. <laughs> oh, well done. Or rather, there are two correct plurals for octopus, octopodes or octopuses. As for octopi, well, the octopi is the name of the best-selling snack at the Athens branch of Greg's. <laughs> The male adult octopus is very closely related to the male adult human in that its testicles are located in its head. In fact... (laughs) John. Yes, are its testicles located in its head? Yes, its testicles are located in its head. (laughs) Yes, the, the octopus body comprises nothing but a head and tentacles. So also found in the head are the stomach, heart, kidney, ink sac, brain and anus. (laughs) The octopus is also one of the most dangerous creatures in the sea If coral reefs had shopping centres The octopus would be hanging out outside them Wearing hoodies and shouting insults at passing plankton Rod I think he is one of the most dangerous animals in the sea Surely, has to be His anus is in its head though (laughs) (laughs) Yes Where are you going with this? uh... (laughs) (laughs) It might cloud its judgement (laughs) (laughs) Something (laughs) It's got to be one of the most dangerous things in the sea, the octopus. Well, it's not dangerous to man. Well, I didn't say it was. Well, I mean, mean, what's dangerous? A shark is is more dangerous, isn't it? I don't know what dangerous means. A shark is more dangerous, yeah. And there's loads of them. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's not one of the most dangerous things in the sea. Well, no, it would take every single shark, let's say there's a million. Yeah. So it's not in the top million most dangerous things in the sea. (laughs) So shall I tell you you what the most dangerous thing in the sea is? Is it man? Hmm. No, the water. (laughs) You can, uh, you boys can joke around all you like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the octopus loves nothing more than a fight, using tiny coconut shells as armour and breaking off the stings of Portuguese men of war to use as makeshift knives. If you ever mess with an octopus, you are likely to wake up with a seahorse's head in your bed. (laughs) John. Seems very unlikely, but is it possible that it uses the spines of a sea urchin as a weapon? I think it does. As a tool. It does, yes, (sighs) it does. The blanket octopus is immune to the Portuguese man-of-war sting, so it will rip off its stinging tentacles and carry them around, using them as a weapon. Yeah. It's still not one of the most dangerous things <laughs> in the sea, though, is it? 
the vein dock. Just because it's got eight legs and it carries Portuguese man of war stings around as, as weapons. Well, I still wouldn't describe it as actually dangerous. Well, it's not as dangerous as a Portuguese man of war because it hasn't got its own stings. It has to rip them off something else. It's not as dangerous as a Portuguese man. It rips the Portuguese man of war to bits and nicks its stings. <laughs> you don't know how often it comes off best in that fight. It may be mostly the man of war sees it off and just occasionally, oh, I lucked out today, I got a tired one and I'm keeping its stings. Well, I just don't think that's true. I think the Portuguese man of war is outwitted and out-physicaled. <laughs> <laughs> they take them from the bodies of Portuguese men of war. Deceased the, oh, ones. Oh, dead ones? Yeah, yeah. So they kill them first. <laughs> or they wait, maybe. That's the most dangerous thing in the oh, sea. Oh, no. Time. <laughs> Time, the great killer. But the other thing that was true, as well as the men of war thing, is that the veined octopus carries coconut shell halves oh, as, I was as go portable armour to hide behind in case it's threatened. So dangerous, hiding behind coconut shells. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so dangerous. I'm so dangerous, I've made myself an adorable protective hat. I'm so dangerous. Right, I'm going to take you on holiday. We're going to go somewhere where they have octopodes. I'm going to arm one up with eight stings from a Portuguese man of war and then you're going to go in swimming with it and stroke it. <laughs> this is the most obvious attempt to chat me up, I <laughs> <laughs> Richard. Well, this is further evidence for you, uh, Rod, because, of course, Shelley famously wrote, fishes, lizards, frogs and toads are terrified of octopodes. Lucy. I think it's true. What, that Shelley wrote that? Yeah. No. Oh. It's nice, though, to feel that I wrote something that can pass for Shelley. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm thinking I of a knew, Shelley no, I, I know, it. though, I not that Shelley. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was Shelley the poem-writing tortoise. <laughs> In fact, the octopus actually has many useful skills. For example, its secretions are more effective than household bleach at cleaning kitchens and bathrooms. An octopus can also undo the lid of a screw-top jar, though, in my defence, I think I loosened it first. Rod. That's true, that. It can undo a, a, a jar. It can. Yes, well done. <laughs> Octopuses or octopodes do this by pressing their body onto the lid and grasping the sides with their eight tentacles. And some have even managed to open childproof lids on medicine bottles. So... Yeah, yeah. not dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying there is a danger from octopuses of poisoning? I'm saying, if you've got young kids, watch where you put your medicine bottles if you've got an octopus around. <laughs> Perhaps the crowning skill of the octopus, however, is how it responds to fear. If an octopus is threatened by, say, a shark with a gun or a dinner party it really doesn't want to go to, it has a very neat trick. The octopus has been known to actually eat itself. As Tennyson wrote, as trouble brews and terror bodes, they self-ingest, do octopodes. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. <laughs> At the end of that round, Richard, you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, <laughs> yeah. which is that the octopus has been known to actually eat itself. Um, I was going to say that. So was yeah. I. Many octopuses have been observed to eat their own... Where did it go? Many octopuses... In his head. Look, I'm not saying they cleared their plate, you know. <laughs> Many octopuses have been observed to eat their own arms... And it was once believed the octopus did this due to stress. It's now thought to be the result of a neurological disorder prompted by a virus. Uh, and that means, Richard, that you've scored one point. We turn now to John Finnamore. 
John studied English at university, which he excelled in, and by graduation he was speaking it fluently. <laughs> Your subject, John, is aeroplanes, heavier-than-air flying vehicles with fixed wings which are usually powered by propellers or jet engines. Fingers on buzzers, everyone else. Off you go, John. Since the dawn of time, man has gazed up at the sky and dreamt of what it must be like to sit in it somehow, eating mini pretzels and half-watching Paul Blart Mall Cop. Well... Today, we can answer that question in two simple words. Aeroplanes. Aeroplanes have existed in the wild, of course, ever since the pterodactyl. But the first man-made aeroplane was built by a pair of simple Ohio biscuit salesmen, Wilbur and Orville Wright. The Wright brothers were, as I say, pigeon farmers by trade. And it was watching these majestic creatures take flights that inspired Orville to turn to his brother one morning and say, Wilbur... <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could fly <laughs> Right up to the sky But I can't <laughs> A curious light came into Wilbur's eye As he replied, Orville You can <laughs> I can't you can. And so, financed entirely by their day job, which, you'll remember, was running a bike shop, they set to work designing an aeroplane Richard I believe they ran a bike shop they did run a bike shop. So they set to work, designing an aeroplane. Tensions ran high, as Orville was keen to build an F-16 fighter, whilst Wilbur had his heart set on a Boeing 747. <laughs> when such arguments arose, the brothers would deliberately swap sides midway and argue the other's point of view. At first, Orville thought this was a stupid idea, but then Wilbur made them swap sides, and after that, Orville convinced Wilbur <laughs> it was a good idea, so they did it. <laughs> and Lucy... Perhaps they did swap sides. They did swap sides, yes. In, in what sense? In an argument, if either one was correct. That's exactly what they used to do. They'd deliberately swap sides in arguments and uh, argue the other's point of view. This helped them solve conflicts constructively and is a rhetorical exercise dating back to the 3rd century AD. You could do that with the octopus, couldn't you? Yeah, Swap we could try that. Together. So you think it's... Okay, I think it's terrifying, the octopus. I would say <laughs> it's the most dangerous animal in the sea. <laughs> in that case, I think I should have a point for that. It worked on Orville, and today it worked on Richard. <laughs> John. Aviatrix Lillian Bland built the first aeroplane in Northern Ireland, using a whiskey bottle as a petrol tank and her aunt's ear trumpet to feed it. It had the engine of a lawnmower, the wheels of a pram, and the wings of an albatross, earning her a lifetime ban from Belfast Bird Sanctuary. Rod. Lawnmower. <laughs> no. What was the name of the lady? Lillian Bland. Ooh, that's, that's tempting. Is it? Anyway, I got well, There's your buzzer thinking at <laughs> Um. I think Lillian Bland, I think Lillian Bland uh, created the first Irish aircraft. That's true. Built the first aeroplane in Northern Ireland using a whiskey bottle as a petrol tank and her aunt's ear trumpet to feed it. Well done. And she called her aeroplane the Mayfly, as in, it may fly or it may not. <laughs> in 1929, Ellsworth W. Bunce became the first man to walk along the wing of a plane in flight. In 1930, he became the first man to milk a cow on a plane. And in 1931, he became the first man to realise that no matter what wacky things he did on planes, his parents would still prefer his brother. <laughs> Since then, aeroplanes have been designed in every imaginable shape and size. 
For instance, the Lockheed McDonnell 312, which had both wings on the same side of the fuselage and was consequently very good at turning right, but very bad at not turning right. <laughs> then there was the Caproni CA-60, which had nine wings and eight engines and contained a cocktail bar, a swimming pool, a race course and an aerodrome. Richard? I don't think it had a swimming pool, but maybe nine engines and eight wings, or the other way around. It was nine wings and eight engines. You're absolutely right. Well done. <laughs> the Caproni CA-60. The absurd aircraft had three sets of triplane wings attached to a giant fuselage which resembled a luxury houseboat. Uh, although originally intended to carry passengers back and forth over the Atlantic, the plane crashed on its first and only flight in 1921 after only reaching a height of 18 metres. <laughs> Rod. He milked that cow, didn't he? <laughs> you are far too late oh, for the cow that. milking. He did, though, didn't he? He did milk oh. that cow. He did, I knew it! But you've been imagining <laughs> an airborne teat squeeze for the last five minutes. Well, some, somebody Just, clearly has, yeah. It's come to life in your head. It's absolutely true. In 1930, Ellsworth W. Bunce was the first man to milk a cow on a plane. The cow was called Elm Farm Ollie and she produced 24 quarts of milk during the flight. I, I wonder whether stress increases the flow of milk. It must have been UHT milk. That's the only one you get on flights, isn't it? <laughs> and that's everything I know about aeroplanes. Bye-bye. Thank you, John. So, at the end of that round, John, you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, which you didn't quite smuggle past. I mean, you get the point for it, but it was the one about milking a cow, which uh, Rod had a think about and decided <laughs> had to be true. <laughs> and that means, John, you've scored one point. In 2007, a man collapsed at an airport in Nuremberg after drinking a full litre of vodka rather than surrender it when passing through airport security. <laughs> Happily, in the end, they agreed to help him onto the plane so he could fly his passengers back to Heathrow. <laughs> if you die during a flight on Singapore Airlines, there are special corpse cupboards on the plane for your dead body, while on Ryanair you'll be squashed in the overhead locker and charged for being bigger than a rucksack. <laughs> Next up is Lucy Beaumont. Lucy, your subject is armadillos, small to medium-sized omnivorous burrowing mammals from South, Central and North America, known for their jointed armour-like shells. Off you go, Lucy. When the first armadillo specimen was sent to the Natural History Museum in 1832, the curators thought someone must have shaved a piglet and dressed it in bits of armour. It was only when Charles Darwin examined the specimen himself that they realised it actually was a shaved piglet in bits of armour. <laughs> Armadillo shells have been used to make Aztec hard hats, Peruvian mandolins, Venezuelan pyjama cases and Brazilian footballs. Rod. Mandolins. You're right. <laughs> In Peru and Bolivia, the mandolins known as charangos were made from armadillo or tortoise shells. Though following complaints from animal rights groups, the instruments are now made from round gourds or wood. The mandolins are often tuned to minor keys, particularly A minor, which is considered sad and noble, and a fitting tribute to the armadillo you've slaughtered to make it. <laughs> Heston Blumenthal has been known to serve armadillo steaks in his restaurant. According to Heston, the flavour is very similar to cat. <laughs> if an armadillo was the size of a human, its penis would be four feet long. 
And if a female armadillo were the size of a human, she'd probably be a scaffolder. John? I think maybe they are well endowed, the armadillos. They are. They are. <laughs> yes. Um, the longest is the penis of the nine-banded armadillo, though armadillos in general have one of the longest penises of any mammal, <laughs> extending to two-thirds of its body length in some species. It's basically, it's like a penis with an animal attached to it. <laughs> In the 1980s, there were several reports of Bolivian drug barons using the armadillo to smuggle cocaine. Up to a kilo of the drug can be packed under the shell of a fully grown adult male, plus the pungent smell of the armadillo makes the drug undetectable by sniffer dogs. The scheme only came to light when a customs officer peeled the shell of an armadillo, trying to show his mates it was only a shaved piglet. <laughs> Richard? Uh, I'm going to say they, they can be used to smuggle cocaine. No. If no. I said to you, I have smuggled cocaine inside an armadillo... <laughs> no, I'm not going to give you the point. You strike me as not so much a drug smuggler as a guy who works in TV. <laughs> you know what? I made over $200,000 from that. I don't need a point as well. It's fine. <laughs> it's already served its purpose. That's very big of you. I would have thought a Please. sniffer dog would be quite dangerous around cocaine as well, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all hooked, of course. <laughs> The armadillo is a carrier of more diseases than any other living mammal, a fed of all Americans who suffer from leprosy, gonorrhea, dysentery, hemorrhoids, and the plague catch it from armadillos. <laughs> the screaming hairy armadillo <laughs> is a fearsome monster. It's up to 20 feet long with googly eyes and has 100 teeth. Luckily, it spends most of its life in such a deep sleep that not even being hit with a broom will wake it. <laughs> Richard. Well, so something in there is true, isn't it, Rod? What do you reckon? <laughs> something in there. I, I'm giving you a supportive nod, but don't try and cast this suicidal bid onto me. <laughs> well, I think there's a screaming, hairy armadillo. Go on. <laughs> and that, that it spends most of its time asleep. You're right. <laughs> yes, it spends most of its life in such a deep sleep that not even being hit by a broom will wake it. Armadillos do not need to sleep lightly as their armour plating protects them from predators. Screaming hairy armadillos are particularly deep sleepers. <laughs> Hence their name. Um, and tend to sleep on their backs for up to 17 hours a day. Who hits an armadillo with a broom? Scientists. They will, they'll work so up they, to them. They work up to them. Try with a straw. No, he's still fast asleep. I'll tell you who hits an armadillo with a broom. Bolivian customs officers. That was... Uh... <laughs> That was a nervous moment. <laughs> uh, anyway, yes. Did he so, ever wake up? What, but this one? Yeah, if he didn't he, ever he... wake up, he was dead, in which case the research would be oh. invalidated. There's no, no, there's no creature there's... in the world well. that's dead that you can wake up with a right. broom. I'm that's saying... one hell of a broom. No, we all want a broom like that. Let's, let's change the story and I can uh, say, hey, there's a mouse that doesn't wake up when you hit him with a broom. Uh, Possibly, I've killed it by hitting him with a broom. Do you see what, <laughs> you see what I'm that's going? It, yes. There's certainly been several wasps I've failed to wake up with a newspaper. <laughs> so, <laughs> see what you mean. Um. On the other hand, the pink fairy armadillo looks like a fairy prawn and in Argentina is specially bred for Christmas when it's traditionally placed on top of the Christmas tree. Thank you, Lucy. 
At the end of that round, Lucy, you've managed to smuggle two truths past the rest of the panel, one of which is that the, the pink fairy armadillo looks like a furry prawn <laughs> with a head and body length of between 3.3 and 4.6 inches. So it's no longer than a sausage, but it, it is longer than a prawn. <laughs> And the second truth is that a third of all Americans who suffer from leprosy catch oh. it from armadillos. Other than humans, armadillos are one of the only known natural hosts of the leprosy bacterium. And yeah, a third of Americans with leprosy have caught it from an armadillo. But it's in the low hundreds, so it's... And that's why you shouldn't do cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Lucy, that means you've scored two points. During the voyage of the Beagle, Darwin described eating an armadillo, which he said, tastes and looks like duck. Well, it may have tasted like a duck, but if it also looked like a duck, I think on balance, Charles, it probably was a duck. <laughs> now it's the turn of Rod Gilbert. Rod, your subject is socks, knitted or woven coverings for the feet, usually worn under shoes and extending above the ankle and sometimes to the knee. Off you go, Rod. <laughs> socks. Socks are an essential part of lovemaking in Wales. <laughs> Heterosexual Welsh men today regarded the world over as the greatest lovers, combining... <laughs> combining the stamina of a marathon runner, the stubborn tenacity of a bagpipe player and the precision of a darts champion. Welsh men urge their partners to wear socks in bed. Welsh men know that once the initial total sexual turn-off has been overcome, a woman is more likely to scale the heights of sexual fulfilment with her socks on. John, I think maybe having warm feet gives you better sex. You're right. In 2005, scientists, presumably fresh from trying to wake up armadillos... <laughs> Um, scientists I'm extremely turned on by it. Yeah, yeah. At the University of Groningen, revealed that both men and women find it easier to achieve orgasm whilst wearing socks. The scientists believe this is because the couples were more comfortable and therefore more relaxed when they didn't have cold feet. But anyway, cancer still hasn't been cured. <laughs> uh, Rod. <clears throat> the first put on socks appeared in Greece around 900 BC. Sock wearing at this time in Greek history was predominantly a male preserve and the sock wearers were considered sexual deviants. They and their socks were referred to as sickos. <laughs> in ancient Rome, people who put the left sock on first were thought to be touched by the devil. The words sock, foot, shoe and sandal all derive from the Latin socus, shoeus, footus and sandalus. <laughs> socks have been made from buffalo penis, elephant trunk, emu's neck, sparrow's nest, oh. glass, smoke, <laughs> water... Richard. Have you finished that list? No. <laughs> but feel free to abash now, and I'll carry on after you. How many have you done? Seven? I, did, I wasn't counting, I was reading. <laughs> He's done seven. You really don't like these odds. Elephant's trunk socks. <laughs> um, you, you think socks have been made from elephant's trunk. That's you know what, what you'd like to... No, I, I don't, I don't now you mean... Say, now you I say it back to me. I don't mean that tone to creep into my voice. Now you say it back to me, no, I don't. <laughs> Right. But that's what, that's, but that's, that's the what guess you'd like to make. Yeah, until I hear the rest of the list. Yeah, okay, well, do you want to wait for the rest God. of the list? Yeah, go on. 
socks have been made from buffalo penis, elephant trunk, emu's neck, sparrow's nest, glass, smoke, water, spider's webs, camel's mucus, bull semen, chicken's giblets, tiger's whiskers, lion's whiskers, whiskers cat food, Felix, pedigree chum, <laughs> andrix toilet paper, owl, pussycat, Darrow Brian, Claire Balding, <laughs> and by spinning the captured sound waves of a wolf's howl. <laughs> okay. Full stop. And you didn't like the odds when it was seven to one. <laughs> John. Right, just for the sport of it, I'm going to have a go. Cobwebs. You're right. Yes. <laughs> That's a good spot. In the early 1700s, French naturalist Francois Xavier Bond de Saint-Hilaire boiled spider cocoons and extracted the silk threads to create socks, as well as gloves, stockings, and reportedly even a suit for Louis XIV. Spider silk weaving was once common in Madagascar. In Russia, socks were banned for nearly 200 years at the whim of the Tsar. So ferocious was the anti-sock campaign that the word for socks was removed from the Russian language altogether. However, the Academy of Language soon realised that banning socks and the word socks meant the Russians couldn't even discuss the sock ban. (laughs) (laughs) So they relaxed the rules a little. Russians were now allowed to discuss the absence of socks, could still not discuss socks. In other words, they could discuss socks in the negative polarity, no socks, but not in the positive polarity, socks. <laughs> when the ban finally ended, using the word socks with the positive polarity was allowed, but many Russians struggled to adapt, and many still ask for no socks when buying socks. <laughs> Thank you, Rod. John. Is no socks the Russian for socks? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> No, to Uh, be honest, that was more of a joke, but... (laughs) (laughs) At the end of that round, Rod, you've managed to smuggle two truths past the rest of the panel, which are that the ancient Greek word for socks was sikos, or sikos. They were socks, but a bit shoey. You know, they were shoeier than most socks, but but sockier than an actual shoe. They were only worn by women, though, and it was uh, considered effeminate for a man to wear them. A shameful article, to the extent that it was a guaranteed laugh for a male actor in a Greek theatre was to put on a pair of socks. (laughs) Early days for comedy, you know. (laughs) And the second truth is that our word sock derives from the Latin socus, which comes from the Greek sikos. And that means, Rod, you've scored two points. As France's King Louis XVIII got older, his feet rotted so much that a valet found a toe that had dropped off in one of the king's socks, after which he handled the king's underpants with even more caution. (laughs) Which brings us to the final scores. In fourth place, with minus two points, we have Rod Gilbert. In third place, with minus one point, it's Lucy Beaumont. In second place, with one point, it's Richard Osman. And in first place, with an unassailable seven points, it's it's this week's winner, the points heartthrob, John (laughs) Finnamore. And that's about it for this week. Goodbye. (laughs) 
Unbelievable Truth was devised by John Naismith and Graham Darden and featured David Mitchell in the chair with panellists John Finnamore, Rod Gilbert, Lucy Beaumont and Richard Osman. The chairman's script was written by Dan Gaster and Colin Swash and the producer was John Naismith. It was a random production for BBC Radio 4.